If you have a Bible, you can open it to James chapter 4. Uh, you may already be there, but if not, we're going we're gonna to spend a few moments in uh, the, the book of James tonight. Uh, James is an interesting letter. If you've been reading with us in our Bible reading plan, we, uh, of course, went through the Gospels and then started uh, in the book of Acts with the early church, and then that just kind of logically in the middle of, of Acts, we, we hit James, and the reason is because James is believed to be uh, really the earliest writing of the New Testament. And so uh, when you think about dates-wise of the writings of the New Testament, I know James happens very late uh, in the New Testament when you're looking through the books, but actually James... Uh, would be much further up in the timeline of the church. It would be right in the middle of the book of Acts. And so that's why uh, we've been reading a little bit in James in our Bible reading plan. Uh, James is an interesting letter. It has a very, very uh, intensely Jewish kind of background and theme uh, throughout the book. Part of that is because it's so early on in the church that uh, many people think James was written before the Jerusalem Council, which happens in Acts chapter 15. And this is kind of before uh, Gentiles were really embraced and before the church kind of set its standards on what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and how you didn't have to be Jewish or follow Jewish regulations in order to be a part of the church. So when you read the book of James, there's a lot of heavy Jewish history and Jewish themes and uh, just Jewish religion that you find in the letter that James writes. And the reason for that is because uh, that's still kind of uh, they're still kind of curious about how Gentiles and Jews are going to work um, in the church. And so most people date it about that time. Also, the writer uh, of the book of James is probably not the apostle because he died pretty early on in the church. Uh, you know, Herod kind of took care of that, which was a little gruesome, but we won't go into that too much. However, uh, they do. most people attribute the, the writing of the book of James to actually the brother of Jesus, who is at this point in time the pastor at the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem uh, in the book of Acts. And so, uh, pretty interesting study on, on who James is and uh, kind of his contributions to the early church. We're not going to spend a lot of time in that tonight, uh, but he's a pretty interesting character and uh, always excited to kind of dive into his letter and just kind of see what God has for us. So, as you've been reading in the book of James and we'll finish James, uh, just note that as you're reading some of those things and you think, man, this is heavy or this just seems really legalistic, or this seems really like works-based, just remember, A, our faith in Jesus is an action kind of faith, right? Like there's truth to when James says, faith without works is dead. So uh, there's, there's a lot of beauty to that. And if people's lives don't look different, if people say one thing, but they don't live it, James would have been quick to say, you're not what you say you are, right? And so there's still a lot of power behind that, especially in the church today. And as we think about like cultural Christianity, uh, we experience a lot of people saying one thing, but actually living another. And so James is really going to uh, kind of put an end to a lot of that discussion. But at the same time, uh, he, he, he's kind of heavy on some of the, uh, the Jewish themes so much that in the early canon of scripture for the New Testament, many scholars didn't think James should be there because it's so heavy with some of the Jewish teachings. However, that got worked out, and now we believe James to be uh, absolutely the inspired Word of God, and so that's why it's in the New Testament uh, now. But one of the earliest writings, really interesting uh, what James has to say, and he's a pretty influential character, even though this is his only letter. He does a lot for the church in Jerusalem and for uh, the, the kingdom of God as it extends beyond Jerusalem. So always cool to read um, his writings. Now, when I was reading... James chapter 4 in particular, 
I immediately, like, all I could think about was like this double agent kind of kind of theme. Um, and what I thought about was the final Indiana Jones movie. Any, any Indiana Jones fans? Like, am I the only one? Like, you may not be. Okay, a couple people. I appreciate that, right? So, like, uh, I'm an indie fan. So, like, Indiana Jones, you know, of course, I've seen them all. Love it. Uh, like all the little teasers, all the little nuggets you can find in it. Like, I, I like Indiana Jones. But in the last movie, which, by the way, I felt like was came out last year, but it's like 15 years old now. So, I guess um, that's not really true. Uh, but in the last movie, there's a there's a buddy that's that's in other movies. Uh, he's, he's Indy's partner. His name is Mac. And so, if you're a fan of Indiana Jones, you remember Mac. As a matter of fact, Mac's kind of the opposite of Indy. Uh, Mac's kind of short. He's kind of he's kind of chubby. He's kind of dumb. He's not the guy you want to be. And then there's Indy, who's like you know Indiana Jones is tall and good looking and brave and smart and like he's the he's obviously the hero of the story. Uh, but but then there's Mac, who you think is good. He's he's his partner, but he's not really as good as Indy. You don't really necessarily care that much about him. But anyway, in the movie. Uh, the, the last one, the third movie, there's this scene where Mac betrays Indiana Jones by serving the Soviets. And then later in the movie, Mac tries to go back on that and tell Indiana Jones that he actually was trying to trick the Soviets by tricking the Americans. And really, he's actually for the Americans. And there's this play throughout the movie where you keep seeing Mac come up and he's just trying to stay alive for the most part, right? He's saying whatever he needs to say to whoever he's around so that he can live. Like Mac, by all means, when you meet him in the story, he is definitely a survivor. He's going to do whatever it is that's going to make him better. He's going to do whatever it is that makes him look like the hero. He's going to do whatever it is that's best for Mac. He doesn't care about Indiana Jones. He doesn't care about history. He doesn't care about the world. He wants what's best for him, right? And in the movie, he keeps coming back, going back to the other side on whatever case it may be, if it serves him well. And he calls himself, after he betrays Indiana Jones, he calls himself a double agent. And then after he tries to go back on the Soviets, he comes back to Indiana Jones and he says, well, actually, I'm a triple agent, right? Like he just keeps spinning back and forth. And for me, I was thinking about this in the context of James, and I got to thinking about people in my life who have been these kind of people, right? Like you may have some of these people in your life as well, people who they... They, they may have said one thing or uh, they may have said that they cared about you, but they betrayed you in several different other ways at any time that they had a chance, right? Like some of these that I can remember are funny that, that really aren't that big of a deal. Like I give you an example. Um, I can think of old buddies who got close to me just to get close to like a girlfriend that I had, right? Like they really didn't care about me. They were just trying to get around her. Like the best, one of the most interesting examples of this was I had this old buddy when I was in grade school. His name was Jim Knotts. And Jim was a real cool guy. We played sports together. I liked him a lot. But I discovered later in our lives together when we didn't hang out as much, I discovered the only reason why he wanted to hang out with me is because he liked my older sister. And so he could spend the night at my house, but really it was just to flirt with my sister. And so I was like, dude, that's not okay, right? Like, I thought we were friends. So, like, that's a silly example. But we have relationships like that, right, where somebody gets close to us, but really they have some other uh, uh, you know, meaning behind what they're doing. They don't really care about us. Of course, some of those are even more serious. Um, I think about people who've like been abused by family members who've turned out to not be what they thought, right? Like they trusted them and, 
uh, they thought they were in the best care, but really they were they were being abused. Or um, I think about people in ministry that uh, wanted to control something, and so they get close to like the pastor or whatever leadership they can, you know. And it's not really because they care; it's just because they want to have control over something in particular. Now I was thinking about all that, and I was like, I bet you could think of people like that that you've experienced in your life, right? People that are kind of like these double agents. They say one thing to you. They say one thing to another. They do whatever's best for them. It's really all about their lives and whatever makes them in the best scenario, whatever gets them the best you know, gain, whatever it is for them, that's really what it's about. And so they'll say whatever they have to say. They'll hurt whoever they have to hurt, and they will betray those that they said they loved the most. Now, I would dare say that when all of us think of these types of people, we probably all agree we want nothing to do with them, and we certainly don't want to be them right? Like, we don't want to be those types of people. Those are not who we aspire uh, to act like. And you might even, you know, look at me tonight as I'm talking about this and say, Danny, I will never be one of those kinds of people. And I would say, good, right? Like, you may even be like raising your fist tonight, pumping it in the air, right? Like inwardly, because nobody's actually doing that right now. But because you would never do that. Like, no, I might do everything else, but I won't do that. I think about Peter in the Gospels. Jesus, everybody may turn away from you, but I won't turn away from you. And then Jesus is like, but you're actually going to turn away from me, right? And it gets kind of awkward um, in that moment. Like, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, right? Or maybe you're in here tonight, and listen, you'd say, Danny, I am one of those people. Like, I could tell you a story about something from my past where I did betray somebody, right? I did I did take advantage of somebody's trust, or I did, uh, you know, do something that I, I still feel extremely terrible about tonight. But regardless of whichever situation you're in, whichever uh, side you fall on. Here's what I, I want you to think about tonight, especially as it pertains to James chapter four. If we if we really think about it, when it comes to us and our relationship with God, each of us at times have been this kind of double agent, right? Like each of us at times, when it comes to Jesus, there have been times where we have betrayed God. There are times where we've uh, betrayed his trust. There are times where we have used him to whatever advantage that we could. There have been plenty of times where it's been about us and not about him. Now, maybe you've never thought about that before. Never, maybe you've never really wanted to think about that before. But the truth, the, the truth of the matter is, each of us have put something or someone before the one that really matters most, before our relationship with God. And listen, this isn't just true of us. There are famous occasions where people have put something before God all throughout Scripture, right? Exodus chapter 32 is probably the most famous occurrence where the people of God made a golden calf and worshipped it as Moses was getting the Ten Commandments. We know the chaos that ensued from that point. There's an entire book of the Bible called Hosea where he had a wife named Gomer and the whole thing was just so God could show us that this is what it's like when we turn our back on him. This is what it's like when we betray him. Jeremiah 30, uh, Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 20 says this, surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Like there's all sorts of famous occurrences throughout the scripture where people have betrayed God and ultimately where really if we look at our own hearts, we in fact have betrayed God. We have been those people who are like double agents and at times even triple agents just to be double agents again, right? Like, I don't even know how to do that math in my brain. But I can't think of a a better example of this type of progression than we find in the book of James in chapter number four. And I want to show it to you because, in, in my opinion, James teaches us a couple of things about 
double agents. He teaches us that we become double agents when certain things happen in our lives. Here's the first one. We become double agents when we allow our passions to guide our decisions. When we allow our passions, right, inward passions, to guide our decisions. Now, I'm not just talking about things that you love. I'm talking about what James refers to when he uses the word passions. As a matter of fact, look at James chapter 4, verse 1. I'll show you it. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, pause here because I just think this is interesting. James doesn't have to point at any type of outward influences that makes us fight and bicker and quarrel and, and be at odds. You know what he says? You can do all of that just by yourself. You don't need any help being a bad person because guess what? Sin reigns in your life. As a matter of fact, he uses a couple of words that are interesting. The word for quarrels is the word polemus. The word typically uh, meant the literal wars among Men, this is where we get the art of polemics, the art of debating, right? Where people fight back and forth with different arguments. This is the word for quarrels. The word for fights is the word matchy. It refers to fighting and strife and is always used in the plural in the New Testament. In other words, there's not just a fight. There are fights that are happening constantly among people. Now, the word for passions, and I, want, I don't want you to miss this, is the word hedone. Now, this is an interesting word because it literally means pleasure, and it includes the idea of gratifying one's natural and sinful desires. This is where we get our word in English, hedonism. Just the simple fact that people will live based on fulfilling their own pleasures. But then James uses a different word for wars. He used the word for war among men, and then he used the word for fighting, but now he uses a word that means a war within ourselves. The word for war is the word stratumai. Now that doesn't matter to you, but this is what it refers to. It refers to a war within oneself. Now this idea shouldn't sound foreign to us because each of us have this battle on a daily basis. As a matter of fact, the best way I've seen this clearly communicated, and I know this isn't real, but this is how I feel it sometimes, we think of this like the little demon, little devil that's on this shoulder, right? and the little angel that's on this shoulder. And you have a scenario in your life, and you can choose the bad, sinister way, right? Your inward passions that have the inclination to sin, right? That's the little demon. Or you can do the godly thing. There's the little angel, right? Like there's a good way, there's a bad way. Which one are you going to choose? Now, not only should this be common in your life, but Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. Now, I'm not going to read it. It's a lengthy passage. But it's this interesting discussion where it almost seems like Paul's a little schizophrenic. Like he's having this discussion with himself as he's writing to the church at Rome. And here's what he says. He says, because of my sinful desires, I don't do the things I want to do. And I do the things that I don't want to do. He goes, my sinfulness is dragging me to do things that I know from a godly standpoint I shouldn't want to do. But I wake up the next day and I want to do it again. He says that type of war, right, those types of passions, they can guide us. And if we let them, they bring us down a road that we don't want to go to, and it is really hard to come back from. This is a real struggle. 
Matter of fact, those of you who have lived a little bit longer than I have, you can testify to probably countless stories and opportunities where you had the opportunity to do what was right or you had the opportunity to do what was wrong. Sometimes you won, sometimes you didn't, right? There's a war that's going on inside of each of us. Now, this is something that all of us are familiar with because it's something that each of us struggle with. What's interesting to me about this, though, is James is writing in chapter 4, is that the church in James's day is facing these types of serious situations. The church is still extremely new at the time that James is writing this letter. It, there's, there's this excitement, there's this newness to Jesus, the, the church has been born, the Spirit has come, like life, literally, like all these things are turning upside down. Like this is an incredible time in the history of church, yet they're still facing then the same selfish passions that disrupt the church today. I don't know if you realize this, but what they experienced in the beginning, the devil has not had to get creative. He still uses the same things. And guess what? He still wins most of the time. <laughs> you want to know why? He doesn't really have to bring a whole lot of things from without because we already have such a deep inclination within ourselves to desire what we should not desire. James writes about all kinds of things that are interesting. He talks about open warfare, lust for pleasure, murder, covetousness, adultery, jealousy and envy, pride, slander, and foolish talk. Here's what I know. The church has always had to battle these types of passions. You want to know why? Because it is filled with sinful people. I know what you're thinking. Danny, calm down. I know. I feel like I'm always kind of hard on us. I apologize. But this is just reality, right? Like this is in our sinful nature, our sinful passions. This is who we are. This is what we're born into. This is the battle that every person has, born into darkness, blinded by the God of this world, not knowing what Jesus has to offer. And here's the truth. James isn't writing to people who are lost. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Jerusalem. He's writing to all the Christians that are scattered throughout the lands, that are running from persecution, and he's saying, hey, don't go back to your old life. He's not talking about people who are still in darkness. But doesn't it sound like it? Why? Because we will always have this battle going on within because we are sinful people. James lists a couple of these passions that disrupt what God wants to do to the church. James chapter 4, verse 2, he starts with this one. You desire and do not have, so you murder. I know that seems a little extreme. James, James kind of does go to the extreme most of the time. You say, Danny, I don't murder anybody. I'm with you. But this is what desire leads to if we continue to be guided by our own passions rather than by Jesus. The word for desire means more than simply wanting something in life. It carries the idea of lusting for something evil. As a matter of fact, Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he describes the heart of the Hebrew people in the wilderness after Moses led them out of Egypt. Here's what he writes. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We wouldn't desire that. We wouldn't go after those things like they went after those things. The word for murder is the same word that Jesus used when talking about the Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, when he said these words. You have heard that it was said of the, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. These are the types of passions that we have, 
and they produce such sinfulness as murder. He shows us another one, though. If you keep reading, in verse 2 he says, You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Now what's interesting about fight and quarrel here is that these are the verb forms of the same words that James used in chapter 1, when he, I mean in verse 1, when he talked about fights and quarrels. He's saying this is what we do. Why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? Because of the passions that are in you. Now he goes back and says those passions produce desires that cause you to fight and to quarrel. Now I don't know if you see this, but this is just a cycle. When we give in to our sinful passions, it's a cycle that just brings us deeper and deeper and deeper and further and further and further away from God. The word for covet is the word zeleo. It means to covet earnestly. It means to strive for something with all that you have. Now imagine, you have striven. Is that the right? You have striven with all that you have, yet... You cannot obtain it. Imagine the chaos, the burden that must put on someone's life. They've given all they can to get it, yet they come up empty-handed. He says this type of burden only leads to fights and quarrels. I hear these statements, murder and fight and quarrel, and all I can think about is the battle that is waging in the world around us. The interesting part about the audience that James is writing to is that it's not lost people. It is, in fact, the church of Jesus Christ. These are his followers. James is showing us a battleground within the church, rather, by the way, within the church, rather than without. It's no surprise that the devil wants to fight the church and to kill the cause of Christ. However, he doesn't typically have to find or search or go too far because the passions within us cause us to fight each other. John Phillips wrote this about the war that's within us, and I thought it was interesting. Listen to these words. He wrote, Sometimes the flesh arrays itself in its worldly robes and plunges us into all kinds of carnal and wicked behavior. Those are the passions that are a little bit more obvious, right? We know those people. They're the broken, the nasty, the gross. We don't want them, right? They're, they're despicable. But listen to this. Sometimes it's, it dons its religious robes and takes a strong stand on some doctrinal error. The flesh can exhibit itself in both the pulpit and the pew. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes the sinfulness is our own self-righteousness, right? Sometimes the sinfulness is our wickedness and our depravity. You might make it look a little better, but when we are guided by our own passions, it does not end well for us. So once the passions within our lives begins to guide our decisions, this is the beginning of the double agent type of life. But it continues, sorry, I had the quote from John Phillips, I apologize. It continues, secondly, when our time with God is limited or meaningless. This is how it begins. It first starts with us giving in to the passions within our own lives, the sinful desires that pull us away from God. We allow that to guide our lives. Well then, just logically, because we're guided by sinful passions, our time with God is limited or meaningless. In other words, we don't want to be around God. We're giving in to the worldly things in our life. This is why James says, still in, in, in verse number 2, he says, you do not have because you do not 
ask. Here's a thought that I had. Each of us, especially when it comes to our time with God, should make it a habit to pray personally. This is what he means. You do not have because you do not ask. I love the old statement, the old quote. I don't even know where it comes from, but the old quote is, what if you only had right now what you thank God for today? What if all you had right now is what you ask the Lord to provide for you today? What would you have? Well, here's what I can tell you. There's a lot of things right now that I would not have. <laughs> Do we make it a habit to pray personally? God, I need you. I want you. Do we make it a habit to spend meaningful time with God? I read this this week. I, I love it. It was about prayer. Here's, here's what I read. Prayer is a mysterious thing. It is one of the laws of the universe as real and as functional as the laws of electricity, sound, and light. Do we believe that? It goes on. God takes our prayers into consideration just as He takes the laws of chemistry, physics, and medicine into consideration. Along with all these things, He takes into consideration our prayers. The prayers of God's people are an important factor in the great equation of His involvement in the affairs of this world. God assures us that our prayers count. Do we believe that the same way the laws of gravity will happen as we leave this building, right? Or we were to jump off this building. Do we also believe that that is the power that's at work in prayer? Do we believe it's that real just as the things that we see in front of our face? Scripture goes on and on of people who believe this. Genesis chapter 18, Abraham prayed that his nephew Lot would be spared when Sodom was destroyed. 2 Kings chapter 6, Elijah prayed that the Lord would open the eyes of his companion to see the magnificent and invincible forces protecting them. Daniel chapter 2, he prayed to be able to explain the king's dream. Then in Daniel chapter 6, he prayed even more when he was faced with death in the lion's den. Ezra chapter 8, Ezra prayed for divine protection when he led the Jews back to Jerusalem after being captured by the Persians. Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah prayed when faced with the task of rebuilding Jerusalem. It is said that Jesus himself prayed through Psalm 22 while hanging on the cross to die for the sins of the world. I don't know if you know this, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. I don't know if you know this too, the church itself, us in this room, was birthed at a prayer meeting. The early church prayed that God would give them courage to change the world in Acts chapter 4. James had a funny nickname. They called him Old Camel Knees. You want to know why? His knees were worn out from all the time that he spent in prayer. Is that true of us? I noticed this too though. Even when we do pray, is it, is it properly? Because each of us should make it a habit not just to pray personally, but to pray Properly. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's that passions word again, right? All right, you do actually spend some time with God, but it's really not time with God at all. It's time for you. You try to use Him like a genie to grant you whatever you want. You ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. When Jesus modeled prayer for His disciples in Matthew 6, He told them things like this. God... Your name be holy, your will be done. Now the word for wrongly is an interesting word. In the Greek it's called kakos. In other languages, that's a cuss word. But it's okay. In English, it means nothing. The word literally means depraved. 
that which is bad in its very nature. This is one of the strongest words for evil that we have in the New Testament. You say, Danny, what, do you, what, what, what is James trying to say? He's saying that by asking wrongly, here's what he's actually saying. Your prayers, your time with God, it's not just meaningless. It's not just limited. When we ask according to us and not Him, it is sinful, it is evil, it is wrong. It's no wonder, I think, that we miss a lot of opportunities to see God do awesome things among our friends and among our families and among our communities could it be that we allow the passions of our own hearts to guide our decisions and our time with God to become limited or meaningless? Can I show you this, the third thing that really stuck out to me about the double agent type of life? When this happens, when we begin to allow our passions to guide our decisions, when we allow our time with the Lord to be limited or meaningless, it eventually leads to this. We begin to live as the world rather than Christ. This is why James writes in James 4, verse 4, You adulterous people! Exclamation mark. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is no doubt that when James uses the word adultery, he is talking much more serious than physical, although that is bad. He's talking about spiritual adultery. Romans 7, 4, Paul wrote, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. This is one of those rare occasions where I love the King James version of this verse. It doesn't say you belong to another. Here's what King James wrote. You are married to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. You say, Danny, what in the world is Paul writing about? What is James trying to teach us? We don't belong to this world. We don't belong to our passions. We don't belong to us. We belong to God. We united ourselves with the King of Kings. Why do we continue to run back to the old life? He says, you adulterous people, may this never be so. One of my favorite statements is from a poem called The Young Christian. Here's the statement that's written. Nay, world, I turn away, though thou seem fair and good, that friendly outstretched hand of thine is stained with Jesus' blood. Is that not how we should see our sin? I don't want to go there. I don't want to live like that. I don't want that old way. Why? Because it is stained with the blood of my Savior who hung on a tree because of it. Why would I want it? James says you better be careful. The double agent life sets in when we begin to live as the world. He says in verse 5, look at this, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the people the Ten Commandments, He tells them to worship no God but Him because in verse number 5, He is a jealous God. Now listen, this is a very good thing. It's the same way with my wife. I want her affections to be for me and for no one else. And listen to me. If anyone tries to get in the way of that, they will be met with strong opposition. This is true of God and His people too. Can I tell you something, friends? When Satan is so much after you, can you imagine the force that has your back? Can you imagine the daredevil that is the devil who tries to think he can come after one of God's 
beloved. He is a jealous God. He will be about His glory. Listen, that means the devil better watch out. But can I tell you something else? That better mean that Christians who want to live a lackadaisical life, Christians who want to say one thing and be another, people who think a double agent life is the way to go, you better watch out because our God is a jealous God and He will come after the Spirit that is in you. It's His. You belong to Him. Paul said it best. Y'all have heard this verse a million times and you'll keep hearing it. It's my favorite. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's not my life. It is His. Listen, James tells us that we are tempted when we allow our passions to guide our decisions. And if we stay close to Him, we would be able to fight against the passions of our flesh. It's when our time with Him is limited or meaningless that we get into trouble and then we begin to live like the world rather than how God desires us to live. I don't know about you, but I've experienced this type of double life. Matter of fact, if you're in the room this evening and you say you never have, I would really, really caution you. Matter of fact, John says in 1 John, if you say you have no sin, you are a liar. Listen, I've been here. It's not a fun place to be. But can I tell you something? I'm so thankful that we don't end on James chapter 4, verse 5, because that seems really bad. And In fact, here's what we do learn finally from this text. Though we could certainly allow our passions to guide us, and though our time with God can become limited or meaningless, and though we can begin to choose this world over Him, God can use us for something more if we allow Him to use us for something more more. Look at verse 6. We're going to wrap it up. But He gives more grace. I don't know if you heard that. I'm going to read it again. But He gives more grace. I wonder if there's a bunch of people in this room who are like me, that when you read something like that, you say, hallelujah. Like I think when God was writing that, when He was using James and the Holy Spirit was moving that hand for him, here's what I think He was thinking. That old Danny Boudreaux. That dude going to need some more grace. I tell you what, I, he's going to give his life to me and it's going to be great and he's going to do something stupid. He's going to need more grace. And he's going to come out of that and he's going to be walking with me and then that old double agent life's going to come back. You know what? He's going to betray me. You know what? He's going to need some more grace. And you know what? Just when I think he's got it figured out and he's doing the right thing, he's going to do something stupid again. And guess what? He's going to need more grace. God, thank you for more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, grace is not just for the person who needs to give their life to Jesus. Grace is for the person who walks with Jesus every single day. I read this recently. I loved it. God's grace set Egypt's captives free. Without a doubt, right? They were stuck in bondage until God released them. Hallelujah. I was in darkness until Jesus broke the chains and set me free. But listen to this. But God not only put His people under the blood, but also marched them out of the house of bondage, brought them through the water, and turned their faces toward the promised land. Listen, did they need water? He brought it flowing from a rock. Did they need food? He sent them bread from heaven. Were they assailed by foes? He gave them victory. Did they need to know which way to go? He marched before them. Did they need protection from the smiting sun and the staring moon? He spread a cloudy canopy over one and all. Did they need to cross a river? He smote it so that it would part before them. Were the walls of Jericho too great and tall and strong? He knocked them down. It was grace for them. It is grace for us. So thankful that God 
can use us for something more. Let me, let me show you this little process. Let me show you this little key, these little key ingredients that he gives us so that we don't have to walk alone, but we can walk with him. Here's the first one. He tells us to submit to God. Look at verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A lot of people quote the end of this verse and think that that's what they need to do. Man, if you'll just get better at resisting the devil, if you'll just strengthen a little bit, if you'll just fight a little harder, if you'll just get stronger willed and resist the devil. Can I tell you something, friends? We can no more resist the devil than a dog can keep from eating chocolate when it falls from the table. He can't do it. No matter how bad it hurts him. You know what he's going to do? He's going to lick up that chocolate every time. We think dumb dog. Hey, how often do you think God thinks that about us? I know it's a little harsh. I apologize. The devil is crafty in all of his ways. He's been around the block a few times and his entire purpose on this planet is to cause people to sin. He knows every trick and he can cause you to fall every time and any time. The only way that James tells his people they can succeed is to submit to God. The word submit is an interesting word. It's a military word that literally means to rank under. You know what he's telling his followers to do? You know what he's telling the church to do? He's saying, look, God's got it all figured out. You know what the best course of action for you is? Get on his team. He's going to carry you all the way. You're going to win the state championship, brothers. Get behind him. His arm can do it, right? He's the greatest general you could ever have. Hey, listen, he is the best. Will you submit to him? Jesus displays this in Matthew chapter 4. Every time the devil tempts him, what does he do? He turns to the Word of God. And what does the devil do? Eventually, he has to flee. Can you imagine if we submit to that kind of authority? If we submit to the Word of God? If we submit to the Spirit of God? Listen to this from Acts chapter 4. Let me read you this. It's so beautiful. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, I love this, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Listen to me, friends. God never said it would be easy, but He did say that He would be with you. In fact, the word for resist literally means to stand there. He's not asking you to do anything. He's telling you to stand there. Stand where? Stand on the Word of God and the devil will flee from you. Will you submit to him. Let me show you this next one. Commit. Definitely need to submit to God. What about commit to God? I love what he says. James continues, verses 8 and 9. He says, draw near to God. Don't miss this. I love it. You ready? Draw near to God. And guess what? He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I love this phrase, draw near to God. Think about how near to God mankind once was. 
Adam and Eve walked with God and they enjoyed perfect communion with Him. Could you imagine how awesome it must have been to sit before God and soak up His presence? However, now we live in a world where there is distance between God and man and this distance is not in miles. This distance is in morals. This is the distance that all mankind felt until Jesus came. And Jesus made a bridge between us and God. And now James and others can proudly shout, draw near to God. What's even more awesome is that when we do, He draws near to us. Listen, this isn't like husbands when you're scooting over a little closer to your wife, hoping that you know she's going to love you a little more. No, no, no. He don't run away from you. Listen, as you scoot closer to God, He's going to keep scooting closer to you. Will you commit to drawing near to God? Let me show you this last one. Permit. Permit God to use your life. Submit to God. Commit to God. Permit God to use your life. This is verse 10, last one, James 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Listen, when you submit and commit, then you will permit God to use you for His glory. I'm with James on this one. I want God to use me for the purpose He created me for. I want God to exalt me for His name's sake. This is why Paul wrote after they were saved in Ephesians chapter 2, after he proclaimed the greatness of Jesus' grace and mercy, that we're saved by the power of Jesus. I love what happens next. Make it stop. It's happening right now. Wait! Gosh, that was scary. Can you imagine if that had been something bad? <laughs> Alright, I think that's God's way of saying it's over. So, uh, there's your last blanks for those of you who like to finish it all. That would have been interesting. I was hopefully looking up appropriate things earlier. When we don't want to be double agents, I hope you're, I hope you're the same way. <laughs> then do as James recommends: submit, commit, and permit God to use your life.